State testing programs have been a cornerstone of school reform in the U.S. for nearly three decades. But is that cornerstone starting to crumble? A new analysis shows that between 2014 and 2019, legislators in 36 states enacted laws to reduce the role of standardized tests in K-12 schools. And now, with the COVID-19 pandemic closing schools nationwide, we're about to experience the first school year since the 1990s without federally required state tests. What's behind the anti-testing backlash? Will state tests return in 2021? And what would be lost if they don't? I'm Marty West, editor of Education Next, and my guest today is Lynn Olson. Lynn is a senior fellow at FutureEd, a think tank at Georgetown's McCourt School of Public Policy. Along with Craig Gerald, she's the author of a new article headlined, Statewide Standardized Assessments Were in Peril Even Before the Coronavirus, Now They're Really in Trouble, that's based on a longer FutureEd report and is available now at educationnext.org. Lynn, welcome to the EdNext podcast. Thank you. So Georgia Republican Governor Brian Kemp is in the news this week for his plans to reopen his state's economy, but your article starts with a law that he signed in February in response to growing complaints about state-required tests. What did that law do? Well, the law did a couple of things. It requires cutting state-mandated high school and, of course, tests in half, confining state elementary and middle school testing to the last five weeks of the school year to make more room for instruction, shortening tests, and encouraging school districts to work with the state's education agency to reduce local testing. And you suggest that this law is typical of measures that many states, both red and blue, have adopted over the past five years, not to mention typical of some of the actions taken by state boards of education and chief state school officers. Politically speaking, where's the pressure to reduce the role of testing coming from? You know, I think what's really interesting is it's coming from a number of confounding sources simultaneously. Uh, you have teachers unions and progressive allies who are opposed to test-based consequences for schools and teachers, conservatives who are opposed to what they view as an inappropriate federal role in testing, suburban parents who rallied against tests they think are overly stressing their children and narrow instruction, and educators who support testing but don't believe their current testing regimes are sufficiently helping given how much time testing is taking. Um, so these pressures have led both Republican and Democratic lawmakers to introduce measures to respond to concerns about overtesting. Um, for example, our analysis found that 68 of the measures introduced in 2019 were sponsored by individuals rather than legislative committees. Um, and of those, Republican lawmakers authored 41%, Democrats authored 44%, and 15% were bipartisan. Man, once you put it like that, uh, I guess the question would be who's in favor of tests in the first place? Uh, you present sort of a broad and uh, eclectic front uh, of opposing forces. In the article, you zero in on how much of the controversy seems to stem from the simultaneous rollout in many states of new tests aligned to the Common Core state standards and teacher evaluations meant to be based in part on the results of those tests. Uh, this was a simultaneous rollout that some who supported both measures at the time now describe as something of a strategic blunder. But setting aside the question of strategy, 
Do you agree that it was this push to tie teacher evaluations to test scores that really let the backlash gain momentum? It certainly fed it. Um, and, you know, in talking to Randy Weingarten for the interview, you know, she was clear that, um, that you know, the AFT, in her words, had, you know, has supported uh, appropriate testing, but it uh, supported the opt-out movement in some places because they felt the consequences were all focused on teachers and not on the needs of kids. Um, so it, it definitely added uh, to some of the pressure that was also coming at the same time from Tea Party conservatives and others who had other concerns and agendas. Yeah, sometimes I think of it as having given the organizational strength to the backlash because the unions command resources that they can invest in uh, an agenda and that sort of gave more political uh, force uh, behind the opposition. Now, of course, to a large degree, the Every Student Succeeds Act passed in 2015 was meant to diffuse this backlash against testing and to do so with a compromise. The idea was that the federal government would maintain the requirement that students take state tests annually in grades three through eight and once in high school, but it would remove any requirements around teacher evaluation and let states determine how to identify and fix low performing schools. And as I look at the data reported in your article, I think there's some evidence to suggest that the law did diffuse that backlash. So in 2015, at the height of the controversy, you report that there were 116 anti-testing measures introduced in the states and 22 of those measures enacted. By 2019, there were just 71 measures introduced and only four of those enacted. So for someone like me who has generally supported annual testing, isn't this a good news story you're telling, or am I being too optimistic? Uh, you know, it is a good news story in that measures to address overtesting have certainly peaked compared with 2015. Um, and as you know, many of the measures introduced were never enacted. Um, one reason may be, in fact, that um, we have seen many states and districts take steps in the intervening years to actually try to address uh, some of people's concerns. Um, at the same time, though, um, this issue clearly hasn't gone away. We continue to see states, uh, particularly in the South, introduce measures to rein in testing. Um, and just recently, we saw the president of the Massachusetts Teachers Association uh, not only sort of celebrating the one-year suspension of state testing, uh, but looking on this as a potential opportunity to do away with the Massachusetts state test on a more long-term basis. So at the end of the day, what's at stake in this debate in your view? Uh, what would be lost if the core state tests, and I'm not talking here about selected end of course exams that some of these measures in state legislatures have been addressing, but the core federally required state tests, what would be lost if they were eliminated? You know, I think we have to go back to some of the foundational arguments for why these requirements were put in place. Um, the need to have objective insights into school performance to determine if taxpayer dollars are being well spent, to have objective data to inform school improvement, and in particular, to ensure the needs of traditionally underserved students are being met through 
transparent and publicly available data. And those foundational purposes remain as true today uh, as they were when some of these measures were put into place. Now, of course, the one thing that stands in the way of the elimination of those required tests is the Every Student Succeeds Act and that compromise that I described earlier. Technically, the law was only authorized through the 2020 fiscal year. So in theory, it's up for reconsideration this year. But I don't know anyone who expects that to occur, nor do I have the sense that there's any appetite in Congress for revisiting the compromise that was hashed out in 2015. You and Craig ultimately argue, though, that in order for state tests to survive in the long term, when Congress does return to the issue, they're going to need to demonstrate their value in helping students learn. What would that look like? Uh, so here are a few thoughts. Um, you know, teachers identify capturing student learning over time rather than a single snapshot at the end of one year as one of the key ways to make standardized testing more useful from their perspective. Um, and you're seeing some states now, uh, Louisiana, Nebraska, Georgia, New Hampshire, North Carolina, uh, piloting moves in that direction by creating more frequent instructionally useful assessments that can be rolled up into some type of end of the year score. Um, and Louisiana is also trying to ensure that the tests better reflect the text and curriculum that teachers are actually using in class with their students which is another concern teachers have expressed. Um, we also, and I think it became clear in doing this reporting, need much better coordination between states and districts about what a system of assessments would look like. So there's more clarity about who is giving which tests for what purposes to which group of students so that you can not only eliminate unnecessary redundancy and duplication, uh, but really have coherence. Uh, about what it is we're hoping to learn from all these measures, not just for policymakers, but for educators and uh, parents and students themselves. Um, and that could help address some of the concern about over-testing. Um, in addition, a lot of the focus in reporting about test scores and test results has really been about providing accountability information for policymakers and less on creating reports that are really clear and actionable for parents and teachers uh, who really should be key audiences. Um, and you know, given that it's uh, parents, children who are, are spending time sitting through these exams. Um, so really thinking about how to redesign those reports and to provide support for teachers and parents to have the kinds of productive conversations you'd wanna have around uh, assessment data and what to do next instructionally for kids. And I guess one of the challenges with the present moment is with the cancellation of this year's test, it's going to slow down progress in innovating in those areas. It's going to, for example, by eliminating all the data from this academic year will actually make it very difficult to develop measures of progress over time for individual students, either for this year or for next year. So uh, this disruption may slow down or make it harder to make progress on that constructive agenda that you just laid out? Um, it, it certainly could slow it down. I also think uh, on the other side, it could create some real uh, pressure and demand um, for better, uh, closer to instruction, diagnostic and classroom assessments, because there's going to be such a need uh, as we 
uh, return to school this fall, whatever form that school takes, to really understand where students are and to help accelerate and support their learning. My guest today has been Lynn Olson, Senior Fellow at FutureEd. Lynn's article with Craig Gerald on the threats facing state standardized tests is available now at educationnext.org. Lynn, thanks for being part of the podcast. Thank you. You've been listening to the Ednext podcast. If you like what you've heard, be sure to subscribe on whatever platform you use so that you don't miss an episode. And especially if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. It helps us find more listeners and more listeners to find us.